to preach this sermon series and obviously it's a long list of Hebrew names so you know I'm happy. If you haven't, if this is your first time with us we did a sermon series in the book of Ezra. Uh, it's a wonderful book about rebuilding the temple and, and seeing the temple restored in the, in the nation of Israel but it does have some chapters which are just long lists of very difficult Hebrew names so um, I'm just a glutton for punishment and, uh, and love to read these passages with long lists of names. But let me, let me pray for us as we, as we come to read from God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord God, where would we be without this book which shares with us the gospel of Jesus Christ? We, we love your word, we love the Bible, we love that you are a God who wants to reveal himself to us and you've chosen to do it through your word. And Lord God, we pray as we read from Matthew's Gospel this morning, you would speak to us, Heavenly Father. Holy Spirit, move in our midst. May each of us hear from you, hear challenges, hear comfort, hear the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, Lord, as I prayed earlier, I pray you would direct our thoughts to you so that everything we think of would be be glorifying and honouring to you during this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So begins Genesis chapter 1 at the beginning of the Bible. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God separated the light and the darkness. God created the sky and the sea. It it says he separated the the oceans below and, and the heavens above. He creates the oceans and the dry land. He separates the dry land and the oceans. He creates the plants and the animals and there are sea creatures and there are birds and there are animals walking on the earth. And then he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden must have been a wonderful, wonderful place because in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They were there in the garden and they were admiring all that God had created and eating from the fruit of the trees in the garden. Um, And God was there walking with them. Uh, And I kind of imagine Adam and Eve were just these prolific gardeners and God was there like getting his hands dirty as well. And they were working together in the Garden of Eden in wonderful fellowship. It must have been so, so wonderful to be with God in the Garden of Eden. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. Because God gave Adam and Eve one command. Do not eat. You can eat from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life. The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. You can eat from any tree in the, in the garden, but do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Enter Satan, the accuser. God's adversary, God's enemy, who whispers lies, speaks lies to Adam and Eve and and deceives them into doing something very, very foolish, disobeying God's commands and eating from the one tree that God commanded them not to eat from. In Genesis chapter 3, that moment was a moment of tragedy for the world disobedience to God's commands had entered into the world. Sin had entered into the world. Evil had entered into the world. And so the inevitable consequence of Adam and Eve's decision to abandon God, the good God, and the God who is the author of life, the the inevitable consequence of that decision was that evil and death 
came into this world. And so even today, we ask that huge question, why is there evil in the world? And we also ask perhaps an even more important question, how and when will evil in this world end? That's a question that people have been asking all the way um, since, the beginning of, since the beginning of creation, since Genesis chapter 3. How and when will evil end? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, God gives one clue, gives one promise. In Genesis 3, verse 15, speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan, God says this, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. In other words, God speaks, in the Garden of Eden, God speaks a promise that one day an offspring of women will be born, a man will be born, and he will be one who bruises the serpent's head. And and over time, over history, this promise of God in Genesis chapter 3 becomes this promise that a man will be born who will defeat evil. He will crush the serpent's head. He will ultimately destroy evil in the land. That's a very, very exciting promise in Genesis 3 verse 15. An offspring of woman will be born who will crush the serpent's head, the serpent who was the source of all evil and sin and disobedience in the world. Then immediately in Genesis chapter 4, Cain is born. An offspring of woman is born. And the engaged reader is thinking, is this going to be the one? Is this going to be the offspring of Eve, the offspring of woman who would crush the serpent's head? It would just be a short season of evil in the world and Cain would come and, and, and bruise the serpent's head. But if you know the, the story of Cain and Abel, Cain turns out to be a murderer. Someone who's jealous of his brother Abel and so kills his brother. He's not the one who bruises the serpent's head. He actually adds even more evil into the world by his actions. Then, in Genesis 5, another man emerges. And this man gets a big introduction. In Genesis 5, there's a genealogy. It starts, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then there's a long list of names. And at the end of the long list of names is a man called Noah. And you think, this must be the guy. Look at the introduction he's got. We've heard about all his history, his whole family tree. Noah's going to be the guy to crush and bruise the serpent's head. And it starts off looking pretty good. Because God says a flood's going to come. And the flood will wipe out humanity who are doing so much evil in the world. And wipe out all the things. But you, you Noah, you and your family, you will survive. And so it, it really does look like Noah's going to be the guy who would bruise the serpent's head. That The world would be recreated after the flood and it would just be righteous people, good people living in the world. Apart from when the waters subside and Noah gets off the boat, the first thing he does is get drunk. Fall naked in his tent. And when he wakes up, he curses his son for seeing him lying naked. Noah was a sinner as well. Noah didn't bruise the serpent's head. Noah was, in some sense, set apart by God to survive through the flood, but in many other ways, he was not the one who would defeat evil. And so the story goes over and over throughout the book of Genesis. In chapter 11, there's another genealogy. There's another family tree which ends with a man called Abram, whose name is, God renames him Abraham. 
But Abraham is also a sinner. He, he lies to people. He, he lies about his wife and says, my wife is my sister, because he's worried that people might kill him because his wife's very beautiful. So he's worried that he might die. So he says, oh, this is my sister. And, and so he's a liar. He's a sinner. In Genesis 25, there's another genealogy. There's another family tree. And Esau and Jacob are born. If you know the story of Esau and Jacob, they're probably the biggest sinners of the lot. They're certainly not the righteous one who's going who's to crush the serpent's head. The reason I start with that is because I want to convince you that genealogies and family trees in the Bible are very, very exciting. Every time you see one in the book of Genesis, you should be thinking, oh, is this the one? Is this the one who's going to bruise the serpent's head? And every time you see a, a long list of Hebrew names, this person, son of this person, son of this person, you're getting to someone at the end who's going to do something interesting and you're hoping, if you're reading this, as if, you're, if you read the Bible as if you're reading it for the first time, as you get to the genealogy, you're hoping that this is truly going to be the one who fulfills Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. This would be the man, the offspring of woman, who would bruise the serpent's head. Well, when Matthew writes his Christmas story in Matthew chapter 1, he begins with a genealogy. It's a long genealogy. It's a long family tree. It covers 42 generations. And the question we should be asking ourselves as we read it, and I will read it to you in a moment, is could this finally be the offspring of woman who will defeat evil? So if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't, it will be on the screen behind me. And I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Incidentally, you could have translated that the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, just like Genesis chapter 5 started. Do you remember that? It's a very similar language, so there's a link back to um, to the genealogy of Noah. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, 
and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That is probably the best one of those lists has gone since I've been reading through these Hebrew names, so that was great. Um, I honestly think that's one of my favourite passages in Scripture that I've just read to you there. And I hope to, by the end of this sermon, convince you of just how brilliant that list of names is. I, I think I could probably preach a sermon series of five sermons on just that list of names. My dad's shaking his head. He doesn't believe me. But, uh, <laughs> um, there is lots in there, and I'm just going to touch the surface, actually, this morning. Um, I really do love it. And the reason I love it is because, believe it or not, that list of names reveals the heart of God and the purpose and importance of Jesus Christ. In just a list of names, if you know your Jewish history, what's revealed in that list of names is the heart of God and the purpose and importance of Jesus Christ. And so the, fir the first thing Matthew says in that genealogy in verse 1 is he calls Jesus the son of David and the son of Abraham. Those two names are included in the genealogy later, but in verse 1, Matthew wants to highlight that to the reader. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. There are 42 names in that passage, but those two names are specifically highlighted as Matthew introduces Jesus Christ. Why? Why are those two names highlighted by Matthew? Because those two men had specific promises given to them that Jesus Christ would fulfil. And every Jewish reader of Matthew would know those promises, would know the promises that David was given and that Abraham was given. And as soon as they hear those words, son of Abraham, son of David, they're getting very, very excited because they know the promises that have been given to a son of David and a son of Abraham. So firstly, Jesus Christ is the son of David. Now turn with me, if you've got a Bible, or again, it will appear on the screen next to me, um, it already has, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to read verses 12 to 13, and then verse 16. This is what God says to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, on the one hand, that's a prophecy about Solomon, who was David's son, who was the king who came immediately after David and built the temple and, and reigned. He was a wise king in lots of ways, and he was the one who built the temple of God in Israel for the first time. So in one way, that prophecy speaks to Solomon, but, but obviously Solomon dies. He, 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 he doesn't reign forever on David's throne. 
And so over time, as more and more prophecy starts to speak into this promise given to David, David, your throne will be established forever. Suddenly new prophecies emerge that speak even more deeply into that prophecy. And one of the most famous prophecies that speaks to the son of David to come is in Isaiah 9, a very famous um, Christmas passage. In Isaiah 9, this is what it says. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so that initial promise given to David that his throne will be established forever, the the throne of David will exist forever, there's a new prophecy brought by the prophet Isaiah which says there's going to be a child born and of the increase of his government, the increase of his power, there will be no end. And there will be no end to the increase of peace. And he will rule with justice and with righteousness. And his kingdom will never end. In other words, there is one coming who will be an everlasting, eternal king. He will be a son of David. And he will sit on David's throne. And he will reign forever with peace and justice and righteousness. And so as soon as a Jewish person reads Matthew 1 and hears Son of David, they're instantly thinking, just like we were thinking in Genesis, could this be the one? Is this the king who's going to reign forever? And as we read Matthew's Gospel, we discover that he absolutely is. Jesus Christ is the king who will reign forever on David's throne. And and so that, that this morning, that's my first declaration. That's the first thing we need to know today, is that Jesus Christ is the everlasting king. He is the Son of David. And so there's also an invitation and challenge in that declaration. Will you accept Jesus as your king? Will you enter into the kingdom of peace and the kingdom of justice and the kingdom of righteousness that he rules over? Jesus as king and as everlasting king It is a really key theme in Matthew's Christmas story. It's going to come up again and again in this Advent series. Will you accept Jesus as your king? Are you you responding to Jesus as king? Now, if you don't know the answer to that question, let me give you some help. What does it look like to respond to Jesus as king? Well, firstly, it looks like service. If you're in a court and and there's a king and you're a servant in the court, you will serve the king. So if Jesus is your king, you have arranged your life around serving Jesus. It also looks like submission. We submit to kings. And Jesus is the very best king. He's a good king. So do you submit to Jesus? Do you read this word and read Jesus' commandments and submit to the commandments that he gives? And finally, do you honour Jesus as king. You know, imagine those royal courts in medieval times. People would honour the king, they'd bow before him, they'd bring him gifts, they would would celebrate his reign and his authority. So are you responding to Jesus as king? Are Are you interacting with Jesus as the son of David? Are you serving him? Are you submitting to him? And are you honouring him? Now secondly, Jesus is the son of David, he's also the son of Abraham, according to Matthew 1, chapter 1. 
There was another great promise given to Abraham. Um, Turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. This is the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 2, verses um, 17 and 18. I will surely bless you, Abraham, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Abraham was going to have loads of descendants. A huge nation of Jews would be born to Abraham. He's the father of Judaism. His his descendants would be as many as stars are in the sky or as many grains of sand that are on the beach. One of those offspring, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, so when, the, when a Jewish person reads Son of David, they're thinking it's the Israelite king, it's the everlasting king who's going to reign on David's throne forever, and it's the son of Abraham. It's the one through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. You, if you just read Son of David, you might think, oh, this is just good news for the Israelites, because David was the king over Israel. But when you read that he's son of Abraham, and you remember that promise in Genesis 22, you realise that this is magnificent news for not just the Israelites, but for all the nations of the world. Through the offspring of Abraham, through the son of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's that's what Matthew is saying to us about Jesus in the first verse of his book. If you're you're a non-Christian, no, if, if you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to catch God's heart for the nations in this promise in Genesis 22, in this idea that Jesus is the son of Abraham. God's desire is that every nation on the earth would be blessed through Jesus. And so I tell you that God cares about not just the Israelites, not just us here in the UK, but every single people group around the world. God wants every single people group in the world to be blessed through Jesus Christ. And so if God is passionate for the nations, I wonder whether you're passionate for the nations. I'm passionate for Pharaoh, and I want to see God's kingdom come in Pharaoh, and I want to see many people saved. And we are one of the nations that have been blessed through the people, uh, through the name of Jesus Christ. And that's why this church is here, is to reach the people of Pharaoh. But I want to plant it in our DNA as a church. Even though we're one year old as a church, and we're growing, and God's doing amazing things with us. But I want to, here near the beginning, I want to plant it in our DNA that we would be a church that, like God has a heart for all the nations and people groups of the world. I wonder whether you're with me with that. Aren't you someone who has a heart for all the nations and people groups of the world? There are lots of different people groups represented here in Pharaoh. But you know what? Maybe, maybe God might stir you up one day and send you around the world. Wouldn't it be amazing if Christchurch Pharaoh plants churches all over the world, sending missionaries, sending people to reach the nations? That's in my heart for this church. We're a long way from that right now. But one day, wouldn't it be amazing if God would use us to take the name of Jesus, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to other nations, to other people groups who have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God loves the nations. It was his purpose that through an offspring of Abraham, every nation on earth would be blessed. And actually, that's right at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. It's also right at the end of Matthew's Gospel. So in Matthew 1.1, it's Jesus is the son of Abraham. 
i.e. through him every nation will be blessed. At the end of Matthew, Matthew 28 verse 19, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, Matthew, the Gospel writer, loves the nations. He's put it at the beginning of his Gospel and the end of his Gospel. And the reason Matthew loves the nations is because God loves the nations because Jesus Christ is the one who would bless every nation under the sun. So let that that be part of us, that we love the nations, we love the people, we want the name of Jesus to be praised and worshipped in every place in the earth. Jesus is the everlasting king who will sit on David's throne forever and he will bless every single nation on the earth. That's verse 1. I'm not going to go through verse 2 in quite as much detail. You'll be pleased to know. But I just want to point out one, actually only one other thing that really jumps out to me from this genealogy, and it's the women. That's quite a rare thing for a Jewish genealogy to have names of women in the genealogy. And there's there's four women referenced in this genealogy, and it is fascinating the women that Matthew chooses to put in the genealogy. It's it's fascinating, the women that the Holy Spirit chose to include in this genealogy. You know what, if it was me, if I was writing this gospel, I'd probably put in Sarah. Sarah was Abraham's wife, and she had a child when she was 90 years old. And in some ways, she's the matriarch of the Jewish nation. She's a very important woman. I would, I would probably include her. I'd probably include Leah and Rachel. Just, I mean, just because my wife called Rachel, I think that she should probably be in there. Like, who would, like, which wonderful women of the Old Testament would you think should be included in this genealogy? But you notice, neat. Sarah's not mentioned. Leah's not ma- mentioned. Ra- uh, Rachel's not mentioned. Rebecca's not mentioned. None of these kind of big, famous wives of the patriarchs are mentioned. Instead, in verse 3, you've got a lady called Tamar. In verse 5, you've got a lady called Rahab. Also in verse 5, you've got a lady called Ruth. And in verse 6, you have a lady who's not even named, a lady called Bathsheba, who's called the, the wife of Uriah. And I want to tell you the story of those four women, because when you understand the story of those four women, you start to see the heart of God in this genealogy. So firstly, let me tell you the the story of Tamar, which is probably the most shocking story in this genealogy. The story of Judah and Tamar is is one of the messiest stories in the Old Testament. Tamar is initially married to Judah's oldest son, a man called Ur, which is one of my favourite names in the Bible. Like, like, Judah, what will you call your son? Uh, Oh, okay. That's what what he's he's called, Ur. So um, Tamar is married to Ur. This is what God says about Ur. Not only does he have a silly name, this is what God says about Ur. Ur was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Ur was an evil man, and God said, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to take away your life. So Ur dies, and Tamar is left a widow. Now, according to Old Testament law, if a married man dies without having a son, then the the woman is, is given to his next brother. Kind of in, so in order that together, firstly, the, the woman would be looked after by the brother, and secondly, that this brother, through his brother's wife, would give his dead brother an heir, if that makes sense. So this is the Old Testament law, that when Ur dies, uh, Tamar needs to be taken and given to a man called Onan, Tamar's brother. And that's what happens. Judah takes Tamar and gives her in marriage to Onan. Onan 
was also a wicked man. And he didn't want to give his older brother uh, uh, an heir. He didn't like his older brother because he had a silly name. So he didn't want to give his, his older brother an heir. And so he deliberately spills his semen on the ground rather than, than give his brother an heir. And so God put him to death as well. Just like Ur was killed for his sin, so Onan was also killed for his sin. Judah had a third son. And so what should have happened is that Tamar was given to the third son so that Tamar might have children because this was, this was the longing of all the, all the women in Israel was that they might have children. And so she, she, would, she was longing to have a child. And so what should happen is that Tamar was taken and given to the third child. But Judah, he thinks that Tamar's cursed. I gave you to my first son and he died. I gave you to my second son and he died. You are a, you're a curse. It, it says this in the Bible, Judah feared that his third son would die as well. Do you see what Judah's doing? He's blaming Tamar for the death of the first two sons. It wasn't Tamar's fault. It was their fault for their sin. And so Tamar becomes this woman who is not given to the third son, who is trapped in Judah's household. She doesn't have any children, and she doesn't have a husband. Judah has sinned. He's locked Tamar into an unfruitful, unloved, neglected existence. And, and from Judah's point of view, Tamar can just remain in his household forever and ever, never having children, never having a family. Um, she probably wouldn't work because she's a woman. So what, what was her existence? It was just to kind of just rot in his family and have nothing in life to look forward to. One day, um, Judah goes to do some sheep shearing. And someone tells Tamar that's what Judah has gone to do. Someone who obviously felt quite sorry for Tamar, I think. And so Tamar does something desperate, wrong in one sense, but at the same time she's just acting out of sheer desperation and she's been forced into a corner. And so what Tamar does is dress as a prostitute, meet with Judah, wearing a veil so that Judah doesn't recognise her, and Judah sleeps with the prostitute. So Judah wasn't being particularly righteous in that moment either, um, but Judah sleeps with Tamar, and Judah doesn't have any money to pay the prostitute, so he says, what shall I give you? And Tamar says to him, oh, give me your staff, give me your signet, and give me your cloak. And so um, Judah hands over all his stuff and says, bring that, bring that to my household, and I can pay you for what, what's just happened. Tamar becomes pregnant, but never returns to the household of Judah to get payment. Three months goes by, and people in the household of Judah start to realise that Tamar is pregnant. And they go to Judah and say, Tamar's done something awful. She should have been locked away doing nothing in your household forever. But instead, she's gone and slept with someone, and now she's pregnant. And so Judah gets furious and goes to punish Tamar, this cursed woman who's killed his oldest sons, and now she's sleeping around behind his back. And when he goes to punish Tamar, Tamar shows him the cloak and the staff and the signet. And Judah realises that he's the sinner. He's the one who locked her away. He's the one who didn't follow the law. He's the one who went and slept with a prostitute and made Tamar pregnant. And one of the sons, she gives birth to twin boys, one of the sons is a man called Perez, who ultimately is in this lineage, in the lineage of Jesus Christ. That is amazing, isn't it? Like, kind of bizarre to me in some ways that this relationship, this son, would be included in Jesus' descendant, in, in, yeah, in Jesus, 
Jesus' ancestors. And I think this is what it shows us. That this woman Tamar was considered cursed, and yet by God, she is blessed to be named in the greatest of all family trees. Our God is a God who cares for widows, who cares for the hurting, who, who cares particularly for women who have been um, unfairly treated by men. And his intention to, is to turn their perceived curses into blessing. That's what he does in the life of Tamar. He, he turns her perceived cursing into blessing. How about Rahab in verse 5? Rahab in verse 5 is, is a very surprising person to be included in this list. She is firstly, she's a Canaanite. She's one of Israelite's enemies. Canaan and Israel were enemies. And Rahab is a Canaanite. She's also a prostitute, so a link to Tamar. And she's also famous for lying. What, what did Rahab do? Is sp Israelite spies came into the land to look at the land that the Israelites were going to invade. And Rahab the Canaanite, instead of telling her nation that these spies had come, she turned around to the, to the spies and said, uh, I'm actually, I'm going to hide you, I'm going to keep you, and I'm going to lie to my nation. So she is a surprising woman to find in this list. But despite these things, one thing Rahab did have was faith in God. This is what Rahab says to those spies. I know that the Lord has given you the land. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Please save me and my family. And so her inclusion in this genealogy tells us another thing that's significant about Jesus' mission. He came to save sinners. He came to save the Canaanites. He came, to, he came to save the liars. He came to save the prostitutes. He came to save those who have faith in God for salvation. That's what marks Rahab out. She's a woman who had faith in God for salvation. She saw the Israelite army was going to invade her country, and she believed God and said, well, I need to find a way to, to be safe, so I'm going to trust God. I'm going to have faith in God. I'm going to declare my faith. And she was saved, and, and she... And she had a relationship with an Israelite man, and she too is part of Jesus' genealogy. Ruth, also in verse 5. Another foreigner, this time a Moabite woman. Another widow, her husband dies, and she's childless. And we know from the story of Ruth that she was often hungry because she had to go and um, follow farmers around and pick up the scraps that they left on their farms. But once again, Ruth is a woman of faith. She says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, an Israelite. May your God be my God. So, so Ruth takes God to herself. And so it was. Ruth lives in Israel as a widow until a man named Boaz becomes her kinsman redeemer. He frees her from the shame of widowhood and childlessness and instead redeems her into a marriage and family and she has a child. And she is also in Jesus' genealogy. Finally, let's think about Bathsheba in verse 6. So the first thing, as I've already mentioned, is Bathsheba isn't named. Instead, in verse 6, it says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So Matthew could have just written Bathsheba there, but he explicitly calls her the wife of Uriah. He explicitly reminds his readers that Solomon's birth was the consequence of the sin of adultery. He deliberately, he's writing this genealogy and deliberately puts it in that Solomon was born because of the sin of adultery. 
David saw Bathsheba bathing. And even though she was married, he slept with her. She became pregnant. And David is so horrified and worried about what's going to happen with her husband, Uriah, that he does something truly terrible. He puts Uriah on the front line of his army. So that when, when they have, go to war, Uriah is right there in the firing line. And sure enough, Uriah is right there on the front line and he dies in this battle. That was David's decision. He, he said, I need to get rid of him. And if I've slept with his wife. I'm in big trouble here. I need him to die. So David not only commits the sin of adultery, he also commits the sin of murder in this, in this whole episode where he sleeps with Bathsheba and Solomon is born. And so to include this in the list makes one thing immediately obvious. If you don't know who the characters are in the list, when you hear that story, you know that this is true. Jesus was descended from a bunch of sinners. There are so many names in that list that I read to you from Matthew 1 that are clear sinners. David was a massive sinner, committed the sin of adultery, committed the sin of murder, and a son was born, and Jesus chose that son to be the one through whom Jesus came. There's a, there's a man called Manasseh in that list. He's described as an evil king who did, who did terrible, terrible things. He was a massive idolater. There's a man called Rehoboam who split the kingdom of Israel into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom by his unwise decisions. In fact, every single person in that list, none of them were perfect. Every single one of them committed sin. Jesus was descended from a bunch of sinners, according to Matthew chapter 1. But as you read Matthew's gospel, you realise Jesus is different. Though he was fully human, though he experienced all kinds of temptation, he was without sin. He was perfect. He was blameless. And so one thing this, this list tells us is that, that Jesus came to save sinners and that God can work through sinners. God was doing an amazing thing through 42 different generations of bringing his son into the world, even in the midst of all this sinful activity and all these weird relationships and all these families that didn't quite add up and didn't quite make sense and weren't quite living according to the law of God. God was moving in his gracious, merciful, loving, kind way to ordain his plan that one day a baby would be born who would be the one to crush the head of the serpent, defeat evil. He would be a righteous one. He would be a blameless one. He would be truly good in everything that he did in order that he might be a perfect sacrifice upon the cross and die for the sins of the world. Jesus came to save sinners like King David in Matthew 1 and like you and me. All who have faith in Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven and enter into eternal life. This genealogy is amazing to me because it speaks of the grace and mercy of God throughout 42 generations, thousands of years. Let me finish with one final thought. God's faithfulness in Matthew chapter 1 is so, so obvious. Uh, Matthew talks about three sets of 14 generations, doesn't he? And I've read lots of theories about why it's three sets of 14 generations. Um, quite a few of those theories say three sets of 14 is the same as six sets of seven. And, um, and six sets of seven might be a reference to creation, i.e. there are six 
days of creation and then on the seventh day God rests. And so Jesus is like the seventh day of creation. He enters into the world to end the... Uh, you know what, I'm not totally convinced by it to be honest. Like 314s is not a very common number in the Old Testament. It's difficult to find a specific reason for there being 14 generations um, three times. But I think the key to understanding why Matthew emphasises that is this. He wants to emphasise God's faithfulness. Through 14 generations, from Abraham to David, Israel was growing. The numbers were increasing and King David was a great king who reigned over a wonderful kingdom. The nation was growing and God was faithful because he had a plan to bring a saviour into the world. And then after David, the nation goes into decline. Kings suffer, people invade Israel, and, is, and the history of Israel doesn't go, through, doesn't go very well. For 14 generations, the, the nation of Israel was in decline, but God is faithful. There's a remnant who always remain, and God still has a plan to bring a saviour into the world. And then from Jeconiah through to Joseph, Jesus' dad, the exile is over, they return from Israel, and, and it's kind of quite steady. But there's still different empires who come and invade. So there's the Roman Empire who takes over in Israel. And through that 14 generations after the exile, God was faithful. God knew his timing. God knew Jesus was coming into the world. So maybe there is a numerical reason why there's three sets of 14 generations, and I just haven't found it. Maybe that there is a reason for that. But I think this is just a testament to God's ama amazing faithfulness. Through 42 generations, over 1,800 years, 1,800 years, God was building this family tree to bring Jesus into the world in Matthew chapter 1 in the Christmas story to save humanity from their sins. This Advent, as you wait for Jesus' coming, in a sense, you know, as we build up to Christmas, we, we, in, our, in our spirits, we're kind of waiting for Jesus. I know Jesus has already come, but, but I, I like entering into the calendar season and, and going, Jesus is coming, let's get excited. As we, ref as we enter into this Advent season, let's reflect on God's amazing faithfulness, his grace towards sinners, his care for widows, and his care for those in need. The fulfilment of waiting is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus who is the son of David, the everlasting king who will reign forever. If you trust in Jesus Christ this morning, you have entered into an everlasting kingdom. Jesus currently reigns in heaven, but one day he will return to earth and establish his kingdom on the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, and he will reign forever in peace and justice and righteousness, and you will be one of his citizens along with me, and we will rejoice and be full of joy and full of love. There'll be no more tears, there'll be no more hurting, there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more death, only rejoicing in an everlasting kingdom with a good king, Jesus Christ. And you know what represented in that kingdom will be every nation under the sun because Jesus is the son of Abraham through whom every nation on earth will be blessed. It will be a glorious kingdom and this is exciting. This is an exciting genealogy. The son of David has come. The son of Abraham has come. The one who is descended from these women who seem like they're outsiders but Jesus came to reach the outsiders to bring them in to preach to them the good news of Jesus Christ of forgiveness from sin and everlasting life. And if you're a Christian here this morning you are a part of that amazing story. This genealogy, it should fill you with hope, fill you with joy, remind you of the faithfulness of God and remind you of the power and importance of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and, um, and I'm going to invite Rob up to lead us in a song and I'm going to pray for us and then we'll sing together. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that over 1,800 years, you were so faithful in, in 
ordaining and executing your plan to bring a man into the world, to bring an offspring of woman into the world who would crush the head of the serpent, who would defeat sin and evil and death. I thank you that that same offspring, Jesus Christ, was also the son of David, who will reign eternally over all. Thank you, Jesus, that you, are, you now reign over all and you are our Lord and Saviour. And thank you that you're the son of Abraham, that through you every nation on earth will be blessed and we pray for that blessing upon this nation, Lord God. For, for in history gone by, this country has known you, there's been revivals, there's been many people turning to know the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray for that again, Lord God, that you would bless our nation once more, that you would bless our town here in Fareham, that you would bless our county here in Hampshire, that you would bless this nation in the United Kingdom once more, that the knowledge of the glory of God would fill this place once again and many would turn and believe in the son of David and believe in the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for your care for widows and for those who are hurting. I thank you that women who felt themselves cursed had their lives transformed and were actually blessed and included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I thank you for all those widows who, who must have been without hope. Lord, you gave them hope and you brought them into a family, and, and what a family to be a part of, the family of Jesus Christ. I thank you for your, your heart, Lord God, for those who are hurting. May we have that heart also. May we reach the outsiders. May we bless the widows in this place. May we bless those who are hungry, and all who are hurting and in need. I thank you that this list of names reveals your heart for, for caring for people who are, who are needy. Lord God, we thank you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, empower us to live for you, and lead us in the way everlasting that we might live Christ-like lives. Thank you for Jesus, who is our King. We submit to him this morning. We, we say we will serve him this morning. We honour you, Jesus, this morning with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.